will begin in a measured voice at verse 16. Now, I've been asking Jared for an opportunity to preach a message for our chronologically sophisticated members. And we thought the opportunity today we have celebrating the ministry of Alan Redrup, who has led Covenant Prime so well over the past few years, would be a great opportunity. Before we start, if you don't see yourself in that season of life, don't check out on me. God's Word speaks to all God's people, and this text is relevant for every one of us. So let's turn to it. We'll be, again, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen, are seen or transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I've pondered this message over my own soul, Lord, you have helped me to see beyond, Lord, what I look at every day. I pray that as we spend time here, you would help us all to see there's far more than we can imagine in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, a major theme of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's defense of his ministry, his ministry and the work of other apostolic men with whom he labored was being challenged by opponents and questioned by the churches he had helped plant. He makes the claim that this apostolic commission has come directly from Christ. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul doesn't want or need a platform or a following. He wants to be faithful to his call. So he's able to say in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, even in the midst of opposition, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we, meaning he and the other apostles, do not lose heart. He then spells out the reason for this confidence. The gospel has a transforming and sustaining power that redefines life in this fallen world. And that's the heart of chapter 4, where we are now. Now, this power is not restricted to the apostolic office. It's for everyone who believes in verse 4 
chapter 4, verse 16, where we started, Paul repeats the same confidence that he had in verse 1. So we do not lose heart. The we, though, here is not related to church leaders. It is inclusive. We all do not lose heart. None of us, all those who are in Christ, partake of His transforming and sustaining power. Those who live this Christ-infused and defined life do not lose heart. It's really important. We live a fearful existence in a fragile world. We understand so little and we control even less. Good news is hard to come by. Darkness and strife are everywhere. We're told the very planet we're on is on its last legs. There's a reason why depression and anxiety are the runaway disorders among all ages in our day. We are confronted with bad news and broken systems all around us. The only thing we know for sure is that our time here will end. Sigmund Freud didn't get much right, but he nailed it when he said, the goal of all of life is death. The relevant question is how do we face that goal? Paul's words are relevant for every person at any season of life, but I want to particularly get the attention of folks like me with more years to look back on than to look forward to. We can be prone to all kinds of fears. Fears of physical suffering and mental degeneration and most assuredly fear of death but also a host of sneaky fears as well. We fear the loss of health and the restriction of mobility. We fear an increasing number of funerals to attend. We fear a growing sense that we're irrelevant and the world is leaving us behind. To these very real and unavoidable fears, the word of the Lord is do not lose heart. So why should we not lose heart as we grow old? The key insight to this passage can be captured something like this. In Christ, the goal of aging is glory. In Christ, the goal of aging is glory. You see, in Paul's perspective... He's radically different than Freud. Death isn't the goal. Death is the door. Aging isn't a zero-sum game. Aging is not to be avoided. It's not to be feared. It's to be received by faith as an important and, yes, rich preparation for our eternal existence. Getting older is the gradual exchange of understandable fear in this life for unimaginable glory in the life to come. In Christ, the goal of aging is glory. So how does this exchange of fear for glory work? Paul gives us three compelling truths in these three verses 
that make all the difference. And so let's begin. We do not lose heart because, number one, aging is ripening for glory. He says in verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, so there's some bad news here. Our outer self is wasting away. Have you noticed that? Has that occurred to you? Now, I can trace my wasting away back to when I started to lose my hair in my senior year of college. (laughs) Actually, aging begins pretty soon in life. Our skin begins to age in our 20s. Our athletic ability starts to decline in our 30s. Your eyesight starts to go in your 40s. In your 50s, your ability... How can I say this? To sculpt your body finally gives way. Your 60s, your memory gets dull, and then, well, after that, just Katie, bar the door. It's all over but the crying. Um, But Paul isn't just addressing our physical state. The outer self that's wasting away is everything in this life that equips us to live in this world. Our health, yes, but also our looks, our talents, our skills, our intellect, our status, our accomplishments, our privileges, our possessions, and our wealth. They all waste away. But we're not being reduced down to nothing. The things that matter in this life are being peeled away to reveal what truly matters in eternal life. The older saints used to call this process of aging, ripening for glory. Picture a piece of unripe fruit. The skin is thick and hard, and if you open it prematurely, the fruit's usually not worth tasting. But as the fruit ripens, the outer shell actually weakens. But the inner fruit grows sweet and full. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, It is necessary that our present life should perish, that the inner man may begin to come into his own. For the more earthly life declines the more heavenly life advances, at least in the believer. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life starts here when we're born again, but it's not fulfilled here. It begins to germinate with conversion and grow within this outer shell As that inner life develops, it will change what we value and desire. Those who have been truly born again begin to see that this world is not their home, their stuff isn't all that important, and the esteem of man is simply a vapor. They can enjoy the world's goods, but they aren't defined by the world's goods. They start caring about the world 
not because they value it, but because they are ambassadors, as Paul says in the next chapter, of the world to come. You see, the outer self has a shelf life. The inner self is being renewed day by day. One day, everything about us will be perfectly fitted for our eternal home. Our bodies will be resurrected bodies. Our minds will be sharp. Our voices will be strong. Our hearts will be pure. Our needs will be satisfied. Our sorrows will be gone. Our joys will be constant. And our houses will be really, really nice. (laughs) Aging is just getting refitted to enjoy what's coming our way. This leads us to the second reason we do not lose heart. Aging is preparing for eternal glory. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now there's some important repetition in this verse. Paul's doubling down for emphasis. He really wants us to hear him. This affliction is light and momentary. Glory is of eternal weight and is beyond all comparison. So, I need your attention here. This is a delicate moment. This room is filled with sufferers. Many facing severe affliction and sorrow even as I speak. Now Paul knew suffering. This letter is filled with his own personal affliction. Early on he confesses, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Maybe today you can identify with Paul. Paul also cares about the suffering of others. He begins the letter with a word to the suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, in this verse that we're considering today, Paul's goal is not primarily to comfort, but it's to equip believers for inevitable suffering. You see, folks, we are always either an enduring suffering or awaiting suffering. There is no way around suffering. And we need to be comforted when we're in suffering. In 2016, I preached a message here on God's comfort in suffering. If you feel especially vulnerable in your affliction as I'm speaking right now, can I encourage you to pair that message with this one? Because we 
often need comfort. But we also need to be prepared for the suffering to come. We need both. And Paul in this verse is preparing people to suffer. He isn't saying affliction and suffering are easy. He's saying that their true weight in our lives must be assessed in light of eternal and incomparable glory. Now, that's not the way we tend to grade our suffering. We weigh our suffering according to other standards. Probably the first standard I use is the standard of no suffering. As in, anything that feels at all like suffering to me isn't right and should be purged and avoided from my life. No suffering is my goal. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was babysitting some of my grandkids, and um, they were all asleep, and I was reading a book uh, downstairs. Um, I'd like to say I did a great job getting them to sleep, but they were already asleep when I got there. Uh, but the youngest, Lucy, um, started to cry. So I went up to the room, and I tried to use my two or three techniques that I remember from parenting to try to get her to stop crying. She looked at me going, who are you and why are you in my room? And she had no desire to stop crying. And so I picked her up and I took her out so the other kids in the upstairs wouldn't cry. And so I brought her downstairs and I was trying to figure out what do I do? Um, I don't have these skills anymore. And um, so I thought, you know what? What she could really benefit from is some age-appropriate videos. And so I got my phone out, and I, I found some Sixers highlights. And so, <laughs> so I, I, I start them up, and, and immediately she's fixated. And I'm like, yeah, see, Tyrese Maxey, he, he gets a jump shot. There's no stopping what he can become. Watch this. And so, so we're watching through, and she's there the whole time, and we get to the end of that one, and I scroll down, look for another one. We hit that one, and she watches that intently, no crying, no tears. And then we get to the end of that one, and she puts her thumb up on the phone and starts to scroll herself. <laughs> and two thoughts go through my mind. One is, an eight-month-old should not know how to scroll a phone. The second is, you're not choosing videos. <laughs> so I took it away from her, which of course made her cry. Why? Because she had this comparison that I deserve what I want right now and I'm not getting it and so that is suffering and so now I'm going to express my dissatisfaction with the suffering that's come into my life through you. I do that all the time. That's the way I approach even inconveniences. Inconveniences can simply be suffering in my mind. We don't grow out of that, folks. But we do realize at some point that nobody avoids suffering. And then we start comparing our suffering with the suffering of other people. But comparing ourselves 
with people, our suffering with their suffering, doesn't deliver. In fact, it adds to our suffering. First of all, we assume we can look at someone else's life and know the extent of their pain, which we really can't. So we end up imposing our idea upon them of how much suffering we think they're experiencing so that we can compare ours with theirs. We compare ourselves, though, with some people who don't seem to suffer like we do, and that tempts us to jealousy and bitterness. And then we pivot off of that, and we look at somebody who's clearly suffering more than we do, and it makes us feel ashamed that we are complaining about our own suffering. Using the, the uh, analogy that Paul's driving here of weights, um, there's a balance in play. And... We, we feel the suffering weighing us down over here. And so we hope that by, by comparing ourselves to other people, it will gradually bring the balance back up. But when we do that and we begin to experience the, the, the jealousy and bitterness that other people are not suffering like we do, it actually weighs our suffering down more. And we add to that the sense that we know that other people are suffering worse and we feel ashamed. Next thing you know, we, we live in this balance and there's no remedy for that burden. Paul calls us to a whole different view of suffering in this life. It's an eternal perspective. Those who are in Christ are given an eternal perspective. You don't have this apart from the life of Christ in your soul. We have the capacity to see our present experience in light of an eternity of experiences. We have the capacity to see this present suffering in light of glory, the radiance of beauty that will one day be what we live in the good of. And so... We can see in our suffering a glimpse of greater glory, even a preparation for glory. And even this glimpse is so weighty and real that it tips the, the scale all by itself. And then as a result, though we still have suffering, the weight of glory is what ultimately wins the day. This will never be natural and it will never be easy. But looking for the glory is essential to endure the unavoidable hardships we experience on this side of eternity. And aging is meant to teach us how to look for that glory. Here's what helps us get us there. Aging and death are the judgment of God against the disobedience of humanity in the garden. But God in his mercy set a plan in place. A plan to overturn death. To restore sinners to life. And that a, an eternal life. The plan was carried out by the beautiful Savior. Who paid the price to cancel the death sentence. He was raised to life. So that death itself would one day be conquered forever. And that day is coming. But this glorious gospel remedy against death doesn't just get applied when we take our last breath and walk through the door of eternity. The moment we submit our lives to Christ, the remedy for the judgment of death begins to work its way back into our lives. It sustains us in our suffering. It gives us an eternal perspective that allows us to see 
maybe not right away, maybe not fully, but over time, that though we suffer, we are not alone. We have a Savior. And He will never leave us or forsake us. As Paul proclaims just a few verses before this text, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is how the scale works. Which leads us to the final reason we do not lose heart. Aging is searching for eternal glory. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, people have a hard time with a verse like this. How can I look at something that I can't see? But the truth is, everybody has some sense of the eternal. Freud traced all our neuroses back to a basic fear of the unknown beyond death. If you're here and everything I'm saying about eternal, eternal glory is foreign to you, I get it. But one thing you and I have in common with everyone in this room is an awareness that there's more to life than what we see. Imagine a door. You know that that door Beyond that door is the future. But you can't see through the door to the other side. So our tendency is to fear the door. Because we're not sure if we'll like what's beyond it. So we live our lives avoiding the door. We erect elaborate lifestyles and diversions to hide the door from our view. We do everything we can to not ponder the door, not think of the door, never look at the door, but we always know the door is there. A Christian is someone who sees through the eyes of faith and believes what is behind the door is a glorious thing. In the words of the old preacher J.C. Ryle, death opens the door to the believer and lets him into paradise. How do we look at the unseen? Christians open their Bibles to study what's on the other side of the door, to ponder the unseen world. This is where we find the unseen world. And when we do look and search for the unseen world in the Bible, Jesus himself describes what we will see. Jesus said, 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who are weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Jesus said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. Come into the door with me. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful perspective on this, this idea that we are on the wrong side of the door. He said, at present, we're on the outside of the world. See, we think we're in the world. But as God defines eternity, this is the outside of the world. At present, we think we're on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Someday, brothers and sisters, we shall get through that door. My friends, aging is not about what you're losing and leaving. It's about where you're headed. You see, there is someone waiting behind the door between the seen and the unseen. Someone already preparing a place for us. Someone who will welcome you into glory. Someone who anticipates being with you far more than you ever anticipate being with Him. Jesus, our Savior, our brother, our friend, the Lord of glory, is the Lord of the door. Let me speak to my brothers and sisters of similar age or older. Do, do you see the door? Do you avoid the door? Do you distract yourself from the door? Do you long to move to a place where everybody pretends like the door doesn't exist? How much do you want to see what's on the other side? You've seen plenty of the scene. You get into your 60s and beyond and you've seen all the scene you need to see. 
is the unseen getting your attention. It needs to get your attention. For your sake, it needs to get your attention. And guess what? For the sake of this congregation, the unseen needs to get your attention. One of my favorite quotes, John Flavel, he says this, Remember that you're at the door of eternity and have other work to do. What is that other work? It could mean a lot of things, but I know it at least means this. It means you stand at the door, you look intently at the door, at the other side, you ponder what's on the other side of the door, you look so intently that others want to know what you see. Our job, and I speak to the Covenant Prime folks, our job is to be the people of the door in this church. We can't control how long any of us will be on this earth. But we can be people who care about what's on the other side of the door and invite other people to look with us. That's my vision for folks in my age group. I don't want to be fritting around playing in this world. I want to be somebody who can say, listen, come over here. Let's look at the door. Let's see. You need to see. You're 22 years old. You need to be looking at the door. You're 40 years old. You need to be looking at the door. You're 70 years old. You need to be looking at the door. Let's all, because we're going to go through that door, and we want to be prepared for what's on the other side. That's our job in this church. And this gives me a wonderful opportunity Transition to honor a man who's been modeling this for me for a long time. First time Alan Redrup, we ever had a conversation, he was visiting me in my apartment in Overbrook. Alan was in dress casual, wearing a trench coat, impeccable just like always. He didn't come to recruit me to his church, his church plant. He just came to get to know me. Just wanted to know who I was and no other agenda beyond that. I never had a pastor ever visit me before that just to chat. Didn't leave me with information. Didn't leave me with, hey, why don't you try this? We need you. Nothing like that. Just said, hey, it's great to meet you. If you have any questions, let me know. Hope to see you again. Later, I decided I wanted to be a pastor like that. So, Alan, thank you for opening the door for me and my family to find a home here. And for modeling what I've always aspired to be as a pastor. And even now, you're modeling how to carry the ministry to completion. And I need to see that as well. Your ministry as an active elder in this church is ending. Your mission as a doorkeeper of the house of God is still going strong. Thank you.